Hello and welcome to Clever Women Co, a podcast for women to join the conversation about business, career and entrepreneurship. I'm Em Kaplan and as always, I'm joined by my business bestie and co-host, Gul Kron. Hi hey girls. Today we share with you another Clever Conversations episode. In these episodes, we'll pass the mic over to someone else who will tell us about their career journey or how they do business. On today's show, we chat to Caroline Bowler, the first female CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange here in Australia. Caroline has worked extensively in the financial services industry since 2004, both in Europe and in the Asia Pacific. We're talking investment banks, hedge funds, and financial advisory firms. You name it, Caroline has done it. Caroline first dipped her toes into the world of digital assets in 2015, and since then she hasn't looked back. Her latest feat, CEO of BTC Markets and Australia's first ever female CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange. It's worth noting that one twice. With regular appearances on Bloomberg, ABC, 7 News, 9 News and Sky News Australia, alongside featured commentary in the AFR, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Australian and News.com.au, Caroline is considered one of Australia's experts on all things cryptocurrency and regulatory framework. So join us as we explore Caroline's career journey in the financial services sector and the trials and tribulations she's experienced in her role as a female CEO and stay on to learn what the future of cryptocurrency will look like from Caroline's perspective. Caroline, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting. (laughs) So, so nice to finally get you on. Caroline, just to begin with, could you just briefly explain firstly what cryptocurrency is and secondly, what the regulatory framework is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So cryptocurrency I think people have got this perception that it's some kind of nefarious activity that takes place with crypto bros in Russia. Like there seems <laughs> to be the perception of it, and it really isn't. It's simply just a piece of technology, um, and it's effectively a Bitcoin is the offshoot of the Bitcoin blockchain. It's little crypto babies basically that come off the big mama blockchain, <laughs> and so if the blockchain itself is is functioning properly these bitcoins will be produced by a well-functioning well-run blockchain and that's the first of its kind the best of its kind and uh, has spawned everything since with bitcoin in particular that's used as a transfer of value and it's used you know in proxy of what we call fiat currency something like ethereum though is different because ethereum that blockchain is used as a utility platform something that other entrepreneurs can build upon using you know blockchain technology whereas Mm. bitcoin does not have that purpose or function and so there's different kind of categories of different types of blockchain, but the two biggest are Bitcoin and Ethereum. So it's probably best if you can get your heads around that, you're you're well aware. You're of all it. good. You're yeah. grand. <laughs> yeah, you're grand exactly. <laughs> and just also on the regulatory framework side. Yeah. Of so this is this has been, I think, for me, the single biggest challenge since I came into the role, and it was something that we identified at least three years ago that the, in the absence of regulation, that it was causing a major problem and a major vacuum within our industry mm. here in Australia, but also something that's happened around the rest of the world. At the time of recording where we are right now, the US is still trying to figure out what its position is going to be. It's currently regulating through enforcement, which is not a great way to go around uh, Mm. trying to conduct a business. And then if you look at what the Europeans have done, they've just put through a markets and crypto assets um, bill, or law now across the European Union, which is being rolled out, which creates 
almost like a like a financial services framework um, around the crypto asset industry and the behaviors of uh, participants within the crypto assets, behaviors such as what we would do as a crypto exchange if we were regulated out of the European Union. Currently not the case. Mm. Um, but if you look then to what's happening with our nearest neighbours in Singapore and Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Hong Kong has had a bit of a, an about face on it. They, they had been fans of cryptocurrency or at least allowed the crypto industry to kind of propagate. Then they put a foot down on it, weren't having a bar of it. But now that position's changed and they're, if anything, going at it. They see the opportunity and they're going at it hard. Singapore, on the other hand, being very Singapore about it, and full disclosure, I lived there for 10 years, um, the way that they've gone about it is on a more methodical uh, manner. They've tried to build from the ground up, and they've always been very, um, I suppose, embracive of their fintech and uh, digital assets businesses that were set up in Singapore. And as a result, it's it's become something of a nexus for the industry worldwide, mm. actually, to go into Singapore. So there's a lot that's going on. We haven't yeah. even touched on what's happening in South America, but yeah. Yeah. those are the majors for now. So Caroline, the first question that we like to ask a lot of our guests is, what are you reading, listening to, and or watching right now? So this is the one I was thinking about the most. The one I'm watching at the moment is Deadlock. I don't know if you've guys have seen mm, this. Oh, I so good. It's on Prime. Okay. And uh, it's written by the two writers who are uh, both Australian, uh, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney, I think are their names. And they had uh, Get Kraken, which was on, I think, late at night on one of the channels here in Australia. Really funny. But what they've built, what they've um, created with Deadlock is like a murder mystery comedy Ooh. based in Tasmania with a, like a well-known Australian cast like you'll look at the cast and go oh yeah I recognise weren't you in such and such mm. um, but it's biting it's very funny um, female leads um, would certainly pass that test of do women only just talk about men in the movie that would pass that test mm. with flying colours um, but it's very international in its feel in the sense that this is a story that could happen anywhere uh, with a lovely Australian overlay so if you've got if you're bored and you don't know what else to watch Oh, I recommend Deadlock. You, you'll watch the first episode, and about halfway through, you'll kind of go, "Oh, yeah, I'm kind of liking this." And by the end of it, you're like, "Oh, I'll just I'll just stick on the second one and see." And then they <laughs> grab you, and that's it. Then they don't let they don't let that go. So it's well worth it. Right? Are you still on your quantum physics train? Oh, I love that stuff. Yeah. Oh my god, I love it. it Are you reading a book about it? Oh, dipping in and out. Yeah. I mean, read a book. The ideas around it are what I find so fascinating because it really. Um, takes you out of yourself. So even like on the drive over here this morning and, th- and thinking about various different issues that are going on in work and how am I going to get through this and what am I going to do about this particular problem. And then I suppose something like quantum physics just takes you out of yourself and reminds you that it's, and this is where it gets a bit nihilistic, it's all utterly meaningless and utterly without value. And so stop getting so stressed about it. Yeah. It really doesn't matter in the long run. How would you define it, it quantum physics? Oh, don't ask me how to define it. <laughs> oh my God, no, I we're have getting, no idea. We're getting too existential. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, what I would say there is it, it really blows your mind. And it's about mm. how like time is, 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 a, is a man-made concept. I mean, don't even talk about gender. I mean, if time is a man-made concept, where the hell are we going? Mm. And also about how... You know Einstein's theories about how not quite time travel that he didn't they, they don't think you can go back in time but they think you can go forward in time which I think is wow abs- I know it just is like uh what am I worrying about mm. what am I worrying about I say that all the time yeah right like we are literally little atoms that have yes. come together and now we're moving bodies yeah. and 
as you said, like we created time. Like yes. time didn't exist before humans. Yes, it's insane. Yeah, it's, it's like a collective there. understanding, and we agree on yeah, that yeah. is time. That is a day. That is a year. You're yeah. born into it, and you don't think to question yeah. it. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. Think why would you? But also, I mean, I've got so many other things to worry about, like the Kardashians episodes. <laughs> I don't really question about time. Do you know what I mean? It's just too big. It's too big for my brain. <laughs> yeah, it's all very existential, isn't it? Very existential. So, Caroline, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and early years? Oh my God, I need the therapist couch. <laughs> this uh so childhood uh, i was born in the uk and when we were when i was seven the family moved to ireland to rural ireland uh, my dad's from london he's an east london cockney uh, up the hammers and <laughs> my mum's from ireland so hence the connection between the two countries um and when i when we moved over there was myself my older sister and my one of my younger sisters who was just one when we moved there um and so i had this really lovely childhood growing up in rural ireland and in a big garden and it was really good fun um and the school then the secondary school that i went to was also a rural ireland secondary school um but what was what i found and only afterwards when i look back on it um it was a school where everybody went to it so whether mm. you were uh you know a farmer as the daughter of a doctor mm. whatever you did everybody went to the school or like there was no there was no social strata and that's one of the things I found I'm, I'm trying to get my head around here in Australia is around the stratification mm. in your schools. That's, but that's so interesting. The top. For me, it's, it's baffling. I find it baffling when I see CVs come into me um, from grown adults who put down the secondary school that they went to. Like, if you're now 35 and still putting down your high school, you, you like, there's a problem. Like, mm. I don't care. Yeah. What school you went to, and I think actually back to there was a there was a woman I worked with back on the trading floor in Merrill back in Singapore back in the day, and she did a fantastic job. And um, she was looking at CVs that were coming in from university students um, who were wanting to intern on the trading floor, and she would go through those CVs, and it would just be everybody did the prerequisite number of volunteer hours. Hmm. Uh, in it's like sport, ticking a box, ticked all the boxes, and so she said that she ended up looking to interview the people who had a B in their grades so everyone mm. in all A all A all A she's like why has that person got to be that person might have an interesting story to yeah, tell about like what's they're doing something else around that so let's bring or maybe they didn't get the same opportunities in some sense yeah. you don't know there's so, a story to unpack yeah there. exactly so that's what she wanted to find out I mean mm. you're kind of like and it's so uh, so th- those kind of things stick with me but for my experience in that school I then went to university in in Ireland doing my first undergrad was in European studies at the University of Limerick where I met a great bunch of people um, and I also partied I partied really hard for about two years <laughs> and failed and it was my first taste of failure was flunking at a university where I had I had done a pretty good kind of end of year end of school exams I'd gotten in I was passing everything but French I couldn't pass French this saved my life nothing to do with the fact that I was out partying all the time and um and then and then I just kind of cascaded down this this whole hole of like once I started to fail I couldn't stop myself Mm. catch myself and and I just let it happen why do you think that was immaturity right Mm. immaturity I was 17 when I went to uni and I needed to grow up is yeah. that uh, in? Is that how it works in the UK? You start uni at a year Quite early. Early. Yeah, you can start at seventeen. You like wow. so you're out of home, done. Like my older sister moved out when she was sixteen. So wow. yeah, when 16, do you graduate 17. high school? About that about seventeen. Oh wow. So you so that's it. So you're out and you're done. And then you I mean you don't have to. You don't have yeah. to. It's, my parents didn't kick me out. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like well you're going to university so 
it's really far away. You I have mean, to move there. It also makes sense that you say it, you'd attribute it to immaturity. I mean, you're 17 yes. and you're being you're being thrown into university. Like, yes. no wonder you're partying all yes, the time. Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, I see bananas. But I mean, you know, there were plenty of others who do it and thrive and it's no problem. Yeah. It's just my personal journey was mm. I went in and I failed. And that failure chased me and only really stopped in recent years mm. has chased me for the whole time. I'm trying to get that monkey off my back. And I had, I remember vividly, uh, I think it was, must have been around 20, 21, something like that. And I was still, obviously, and I still am to this day, really close with those friends from uni. And uh, it was after one of my a birthday, it must have been my 20th birthday or 21st birthday. And my dad was driving me back after dropping these girls off. And you know this, the trick that parents do in that if they want to talk to you about a subject, they'll get you in the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can't and go you anywhere. Can't go anywhere. <laughs> you can't look around. anywhere else. Damn it. And they nabbed me. And so he said to me, oh, you're so right. He's like, you're, you're becoming a loser. He said, you're a loser and your friends will dump you. Wow. You need to get your life sorted out. Great dad well advice. Well yeah. I also like that it was your dad and not your mum. Also, loser dad. is such a harsh word in terms of like, oh, I need to get my shit together. Yeah, when your you father know? says you're a loser. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can see how that, that monkey stayed on my back. And I describe it even now as like, my father's hand is on the small of my back pushing me forward mm. in so many things that I do. Um, th- that did not get me on a therapist's couch, just so we're clear. Like, he was dead right. And yeah. I needed to kick up the arse. And I think they tried all the gently, gently, soft mm. love stuff that they could do. And they were very supportive. They still are hugely supportive. But I needed a dose of the truth. And my dad gave it to me. And after that, then I was like, right, okay. And I was up in Dublin, moved up to Dublin and got a job. And also... Um, started university so I did a night course my business degree I got at night mm. so then I really discovered the benefits of hard work doesn't not very fun when you're in your 20s three nights a week at uni mm. but it was like I had to actually do this um, so I did that and then it was on the back of that degree that I ended up then getting into finance yeah. and my first work in Dublin and on and on it went but the, the, the vision in my mind through all of this had been at that young age watching episodes of Dynasty D- dynasty oh, dynasty yeah, yeah, yeah. here okay and uh joan collins's character um big shoulder pads um <sighs> lip gloss always with like a cut crystal glass of some undescript brown liquid oh i wanted to be her so badly <laughs> oh god and i didn't know how i was going to become joan collins mm. i'm still waiting for that day but you're that's... well you're well on your way oh, yeah thanks. i just need the lippy really sorted out and i'll be grand so yeah buy me lip glasses that's the way, the way um but i just loved it i just yeah. loved the 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 independence of yeah. joan collins's character and mm. the power but even joan collins herself has always exuded that and i just found it so intoxicating and and yeah. um, something i wanted well, speaking of female roles, did you have any kind of pivotal female figures to look up to when you were younger? And if so, what kind of attracted you to their impact or message or talent in a sense? Yeah, so I didn't have, in a business sense, there wasn't really many women that I saw that were like, I mean, I was, my a time of influence would have been in the 1980s. Um, aging myself there so maybe it was women like the founder of the body shop in the UK Mm -hmm. who came out with a message as well as a commercial success so I remember her story coming through um, but not a huge number of well-known women in business at the time what I did have instead was a mum who I want to afford four daughters and my mum still to this day is a raging feminist Mm. so she raised us nicely in that environment of not you can, it's you will. You will do anything mm. you want to do. And at the point when I was only a little kid, I can remember my mum saying to us about um, becoming an air hostess. 
because at that point in time in the early 80s that was the most glamorous job possible mm. for women was to become an air hostess um and you could travel the world and you'd have so many adventures this was her this was her pitch and I can remember thinking wow it's gonna be amazing and I also remember my mother saying things like don't marry young and and you know have your adventures before you start your family and those kind of mm. messages at a young age so wow. like I was I was absorbing it all from that point in time very non-traditional yeah very non-traditional yeah my mom had started working in a bank um before she met my dad and she was doing really really well in, in the banking so maybe finances in the blood yeah um <laughs> and then she met my dad and at that point in time you got married you left the bank there wasn't an option yeah, for you right. so she was one of those women who got caught up in that but it was almost like the went. goal is marriage like that's the end of the journey yeah right you know, how dreadful would that be? Yeah, it's boring, it's crazy. Boring. boring. <laughs> so, so much more exciting, more exciting things to do. And so now, when for my mum, she's still, you know, very much about um, women taking control of their lives, women's independence. She talked to me about making sure you got running away money, and that's probably the one thing I, one thing that did actually work for me. The piece of advice I did take from my mother was having, uh, when I was in a relationship, was having a small amount of money called running away. That's that's probably over-glamorizing it for the, my situation at the time. But money that meant I didn't have to stay mm. in a situation that didn't work for me. And whatever amount that needs to be. That. But just squirrel it away. Yeah. Such Don't an important message. You never know what life is going to do to you. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't. And I'm so glad I had that money. It gave me that little bit of freedom then when I needed it to have mm. that bit of independence. And I, I had choices. And I think from my mum and for, for the era of feminism that she was in and the era of feminism that I then kind of imbibed is about women's choices. Mm. And and I make my choices, nobody else. And so having that running away money, I think it kind of gave me that, that flexibility. So yeah. yeah, that's the one thing I would say when it comes to financial great advice message. for women. <laughs> great message and great story. So when you were growing up, Caroline, did you always see yourself working in a career in the financial services industry? Absolutely no way. I grew mm. up the town I grew up in in Longford and which I loved a bit the opportunities to work in finance weren't really present they weren't really around me um they happened and not even in Dublin they happened in New York and London which mm. might as well have been on the moon mm. um even when I was in university even when I was uh, kind of coming out of high school it certainly wasn't nor was it really something I was hugely exposed to or interested in academically like my academic background is more in things like history and sociology and right. that's yeah you said you really did european politics. studies yeah yes yeah, that's politics and law and mm. that kind of stuff so that's what i really enjoyed mm. so finance is something completely different and in my mind also it was a closed shop of 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 young white men mm. with, yeah. who, who all know each other and whose dads will play golf together finance bros right for sure right finance bros um i didn't realize that it would be possible yeah it's also like what you were saying before of ticking the boxes yeah Mm. right yeah 100% thank god that's changed so you know you're kind of growing up you're developing you're going to university you realize that you have kind of this sparked interest in finance so can you tell us I guess firstly about uh, briefly about your career journey in finance what I would say at the start though for me to get into to get into finance um I was unemployed for, I think, up to a year, maybe a bit more than that, in after I finished university. Sorry, I, so how long was... When did you graduate? How long were you studying for? How many oh, years? I think it was three years. Oh, okay. When I graduated, you'd have to look at my LinkedIn profile. I can't remember. That's the back <laughs> of the time. Um, oh, it would have been the late 90s, maybe? Something like that. Anyway, so when I graduated, I was unemployed for about a year. And I 
did lots of kind of odd jobs and different bits and bobs, but I couldn't get a permanent gig to save my life. And my mum, again, this was my mum's turn to sit me down and have the mm. come to Jesus conversation. Sorry, In the was cup? That, was, that, was that because of your grades? Or no, not at all. I just, just, I just couldn't, couldn't, find couldn't get a job. Okay. I was Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to... I, I know you, you did say you were a party, a party girl, so I was <laughs> no, just fair, confirming. I mean, just... We won't talk about that yeah. on, in, on the podcast. But um, so, no, but instead it was, I was living back at home. I was in my late 20s, no, early 20s, whatever it was, I was in my 20s, living back at home with my mum and dad, who again were minding me. Uh, and I'm on the I'm on the dole. I don't know, do you call it the dole in Australia? We, yeah. Uh, on like on, government on subsidy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and I couldn't get I couldn't get arrested, as I say, let alone. Ugh. And I went through this year of real difficulty. I moved country, went to the UK to my sister. I had an awful time over there. Got run over by bus, lost everything. It was a whole big thing. Oh, I just wow. went through this year of just like things were not working. Oh my god! And my mum sat me down and was like, "What energy are you giving out? Like mm. that you are not getting a job in an in an economy with full employment?" And I couldn't get a job. Great piece of advice. Yeah, really for sure. And I think what it was was that I. Yeah, there was like self doubt about it, but also I wasn't on the right path. I wasn't like life kept on going. No, try again. Bash mm. me. No, try again. You're doing the wrong thing. No, go back again. Until I finally was like, actually, what I really wanted to do was back myself a bit more. Mm. So I applied for these jobs in finance, and I've kept all of my rejection letters because when the global financial crisis hit and all the banks went bust, I'm like that one that went bust and that one went bust. <laughs> and that one. I'm like, you know, they say about. Um, uh, the silver linings and mm. all that kind of stuff and uh, and that was mine was like, all those banks that rejected me went to the wall yeah. so I was like okay that, that they should have hired well. you yeah they should have exactly <laughs> I was the good luck because I was the one that kept Merrill Lynch going anyway um, so I, I started working for a private client broker and then what I managed to get the foot that I got in the door was a um, six month I think it was maternity contract or nine month maternity cover so mm. somebody who was going on, on mat leave and they just needed somebody to go in and file papers Yeah, and that's what I did and I managed to that job then spun out to two and a half years mm. and then I got from that job I went into Merrill and then from Merrill I climbed a ladder and it was when I had my interview with Merrill and a woman who actually ended up coming out to Singapore after me um, said to me in the interview you can do anything that you want within this organisation wow it's wow. up to you She's a young woman. She was just reading the HR, HR spiel. But I Do you was know like, why she was buying it? Was it because she saw kind of the talent that you had and like interest in the industry? I, I didn't or read not? it that way. No, yeah. not at all. She just had a thing that they were desperate she's to get staff in. Yeah. So she's like, okay, and I'll tell you what. Maybe she did believe it, but mm. I believed it. Yeah. And that was the thing that made the difference. It didn't matter what the organization itself thought they were going to do. They got me in the door and then I was like, right. How, How crazy to think this? that once you believed in yourself, things just naturally, Felt like the doors that. opened. Look at that. Isn't that a thing? So that's what happened. And so I ended up, I, I, I wasn't like reading self-improvement books. I was most likely in bars and parties and having a great time. I was in my 20s. But somehow and somewhere I managed to take on board, um, I read it was somewhere, somewhere I read it. And it was about how like, it, like if you put it out there, if you make take the step that scares you, it will be surprising what will happen. And they meant it in a professional sense. And so for me, the thing that changed for me, and I recommend this highly for everybody, um, is I, there was this, this particular, I'd gone to hear this lunch and learn, which is bag, like a lunch talk thing. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the guy that was presenting. And I really wanted to work in his team. And I knew that there were opportunities in his team. And so I sat there late at night in the office going, okay, I'm going to compose this email to him asking it was a three line thing of like dear bob 
really liked your presentation. <laughs> she passed on chat. Like something like that. Like something really straightforward. Oh man, I finessed and finessed and finessed. Because I was terrified mm. of what I was doing. And I genuinely sent it with one hand over the thing going with this click. I'm like, oh my God, the world's going to end. The world's gonna end. <laughs> and I sent the email and that's why I'm here. Because wow. I sent that email. If I hadn't sent that email, nothing else would ever have happened. It set in motion uh, a house of cards that then got me around the world and got me this life and got me in to a CEO. So what happened after that? email so after that email um uh, various jigs and reels and i ended up moving department and the reason i moved that department you got to understand though i mean i was i worked my ass off mm-hmm. i was like a high performer i don't only realize now that i'm a manager that i'm like okay now i know jesus i was bloody good mm-hmm. so the man saw me was like i need something like that in my team so he decided right i'll second her in for six months say with dangling a carrot of singapore no at the time it was uh, tokyo uh, uh dangling a carrot of tokyo and six months came and went, I worked by myself, and at the six month, knock, knock, knock on the manager's door, and started the ball running. I didn't end up going to Tokyo because the role that they had wasn't what I wanted. And I just cheekily said, what about Singapore? And he was like, oh, okay. And at the time, people hadn't done that transfer journey out to Singapore mm. in particular. I was the first one out from the Ireland office, and many, many more followed me since, including my sister, as it turns out. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, so it just it just started the journey. It just went on from there, and then I moved to Singapore, and went through the ranks there, and ended up then on the trading floor. So I know a lot about the operational flow of financial services because I've mm. done it from the paper based, you know, filing of stock certificates to, you know, all the way through to where we are now with digital assets. So yeah. I've been there for the whole journey. What a great kind of place to start because you're really getting the full overview of the industry yes 100 percent. and like i think that's a really good kind of tip for our listeners like you can start at the lowest of the lowest ranks and you will get the greatest skills like yeah. for you you yes. had that one moment with sending the email yes. and that kind of spurred you on on this amazing career yes. in the financial services industry what made me valuable and i didn't really realize at the time was that i knew how everything worked because i'd done it yeah and, being, and what you'll find is that when you go through your career is that management level it's not that they're disassociated from it but they've got so much more going on they're not in the weeds the way that you guys can be like when you're starting out in your career yeah. and you then get to parlay that information up that information is power yeah and it also and makes you that. understand your the people under you because you were once in their position so you kind of understand their career journey as well and you can kind of lead them through that yeah 100% and 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 about you know sending those emails Mm. and and taking those steps forward and doing it but even then when I went back and I set up my own business in Singapore um before I did that I worked for a year for another PR agency and I'd come off a trade for an investment bank I mean I knew my I'm a big swing of Mickey and I went back and I was an absolute junior in a PR agency because I went, I don't know how this works. I don't know the nuts and bolts of it. It wasn't that I had some big plan of like, now I'm going to set up my own agency and take over the world. Far from it. Mm. But I just knew I didn't know. It's so good for people to hear that because I feel often people kind of try to like skip quite a few steps just to get that title. But all that kind of groundwork really will build your skill for the future, for your future. For you to get to that position. Yeah. Yes. But also means when you get to that position, the ground won't be pulled out from under you. Yeah. Because you know your stuff. Mm-hmm. That's not to say you stay in a position and you, you, you kind of solidify in that, God forbid, like keep moving. But it's having that grounding, that foundation, and that knowledge is such power. Like you, will, no one can pull the, the uh, wool over your eyes. No. Because you already bloody know the stuff. It's yeah. so, so powerful. Yeah. 
So you've worked your way up the ranks, kind of all over the world. You end up in Australia as the CEO of BTC Markets. In your position as CEO, what have you found to be sort of the biggest challenge in your position? Uh, there's a lot. I think that... Oh. Top three? <laughs> Top 15? Um, <laughs> one of the, from, from purely from a business operational point of view this isn't the biggest challenge but the 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 two metrics the two things I look at most are around risk management and cash flow because either of those two will kill your business flat Mm. they're not always the most sexiest fun things that people get all (laughs) excited about but if you haven't got good risk management and I fret about our risk management because like anyone should and cash flow is the lifeblood and everybody knows that that's that's kind of standard and stuff but those are the two things I look at the most what have I learned? I have learned so much. Um, one thing I've learned is that is around stress management. Mm. I don't really have great. I like it's not easy for me. It doesn't come easy for me to find good ways to have stress management. And I kind of suppose like everyone, you go through fits and bursts where I'm like I'm meditating every night and I'm like totally zen. And then other ones where I'm like just open the wine and stop. And watch Deadlock. Keep going and watch Deadlock. <laughs> exactly. Um, so there's lots of that. The um, the skill I probably have to use the most is people management. That will be the case no matter what level of management you go to. Your people management is primary. So what I try to do is give people as like as much power within their department as possible to do their thing. Um, I'm not an expert in everything. I assume they are. Uh, going on the CV and so they get that that ability um, but with full support but if and when the time comes the book the book stops with me yeah mm. so I make the decision I own the decision the good the bad the ugly it's on mine I have to be able to to be able to take those decisions so um, I don't it's not that I don't care that people don't like me it says I'm okay if people don't like yeah. me because I've had to make these decisions that other people are not going to like that's the job one thing I would say um, it, that I found surprising is it's very lonely at the top. Mm, very lonely at the top. Right. So when you get there, expect that. It's very lonely at the top. And it's not even about that you don't even have a 2IC or you have a 2IC that, or whatever. Even if you and the 2IC get on like a house on fire, doesn't make a jolly difference. It's your scalp that's yeah, going to go. Yeah, you're making the decision at the end of the day. There's only one it's CEO it. usually, so... Usually, yeah. So it's it's on you. It's a it's a lonely place. But also the the perspective that you have, and this was something I'd read actually in somewhere else about how you you see what's happening below in terms of you see what's happening across the company, and you also see what's happening above because you're on the board and you see what's mm. happening with the directors, and nobody else has that perspective. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a very different position to be in. But also you're the keeper of secrets. Mm. You know everything that's happening. And you, there's stuff you can't tell that you know about. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Not to the board. The board obviously have to you know most of it, if not all of it. Um, but even just from an operational day-to-day things like this stuff, I don't need to tell the other directors that happened in, in the office that, we, you know, the company that we have to work through that are, that are fine. Um, but within my professional peer group, there's, there's some really good support there. Mm. The women in my professional peer group are amazing and an unending amount of support. So... Um, you know, as I say, I'm not. It's not loneliness. It's just you, you go in a different direction. It's alone, rather yes. than loneliness. Yeah, for sure. And also, I remember that time is a human construct, and none of this matters. And the whole thing, and the universe is going to explode, <laughs> and every single tra- every single trace of humanity is going to be gone and obliterated. 
So what are you worrying about? <laughs> yeah, no one will remember any of us. Yeah. No, there won't be there won't be any collective memory at all. But every single thing we know that the universe is going to implode upon itself, and every single trace of humanity and all mm. our concerns and cares, all the great and the good, obliterated. There will be no sign of us. <laughs> I know, right? So, but if you keep that in mind. It puts everything into perspective. Don't matter. Yeah, seriously. Well, going on from that, what is the, like, in your eyes, the most impactful mistake or decision that you've had to make in your role? In and my what have you learned? Role. Yeah, in your current role, and what have you learned from it? Impactful mistake. Oh, that's a toughie. I think probably what I would do differently if I had my time back over the last three and a half years or so, I probably would do more on marketing earlier, like, mm-hmm. much bigger on marketing earlier. So I probably made that decision. Um, and that's still something that we're grappling with. Mm. Um, so there's that. But the rest of it, so far anyway, there hasn't really been... Uh, there's nothing that I... Like, given the, circ- given the knowledge I had at the time of the circumstances that we're dealing with, I think we made the best possible decisions given that data yeah. set. Um, and digital assets, like the industry, is still figuring itself out. Hell Yeah. I mean, I've it figured all out. I don't know what's taking the rest of the time. And it was really clear from coming in the door that this this would be a fun story. So I came in the door. I just had my own PR and comms company in Singapore dealing with fintech and blockchain businesses. And B2C Markets are one of my clients, which is how I got introduced to them. Mm. And when I got appointed as CEO, comments were made online. <laughs> comments were made online about why would you have somebody who doesn't is not a founder no experience in digital assets she's in pr ignoring the rest my, of everything your career, before everything that had gone before you've worked for and also uh, i had experience of running and selling a company thank you very much um and their response was like why would you they made some twisted analogy about having a pilot flying a plane that hasn't got a license or something. I don't know, something oh, twisted. Analogy. So they latched onto the PR and then... They were being dismissive. Blocked out everything else. They were being dismissive because I was the only woman CEO. Let's be real, gang. The only and the first. The only and the first. And now now this changed. Now yeah. we've got we've got another lady CEO, which is brilliant. And the, in, in running crypto exchanges, there are other women obviously involved in, yeah. in crypto. Yeah, in a lot Australia of women in, in prominent positions in the crypto industry yeah. now. changed a lot, which is brilliant. Um... But those are the comments I saw. I just thought that was so laughable. And even now, still online. <laughs> so I wear red lipstick generally if I'm going to go on Bloomberg TV. And yesterday when I was on ABC, I wore red lipstick. And the reason why I wear that now, I love the red lipstick. It's my hark back to Joan Collins. I bloody love it. I think it's great. Mm. But also when I look at Bloomberg TV, all the presenters on it are so glamorous. And they are. Like, they're purposefully... Yeah. But it's not glamour for the sake of glamour it's like professional yeah. groomed mm-hmm. as my mother would say groomed <laughs> and um, and so I, put, I wear red lipstick man I get so many comments from men about red lipstick on my no LinkedIn way. on no LinkedIn way. and they're making comments Please about share. lipstick which is like um, it, it's very like, hard is it bothering them or yeah 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 it annoys them it's very hard to take you seriously whether you've got red lipstick on. You're joking. They actually and say sh- that And that I shouldn't wear red lipstick. That's such a male kind of imparting their, like, power yeah, Like, you. Like, I need to be told by you, yeah, whoever junior person wear. you are, that I need to take fashion advice yeah, from you. Yeah, and what does and doesn't make you feel powerful. Yes, or, like, that you don't enjoy it. Like, how yeah. dare you as a woman. So it's that kind of, like, little... Has this in microaggressions? But it's those stupid little comments that you go, for God's sake. So now... I'm always sticking on the red lipstick because I'm like, well, I yeah, like you are. it. <laughs> so Caroline, now that you've been in the role of CEO for quite some time, mm. 
What would you tell others or another woman kind of aspiring to be in that position not to do? Not to, oh God, don't doubt yourself. Oh, for God's sake, don't doubt yourself. And wear red lipstick. And wear red <laughs> lipstick, but go for it. Like, just don't doubt yourself. Um, stop listening to those voices. You're in a critic. Just ignore. Um, you're highly capable, highly competent. If you want it, you can do it. Like, there is a sacrifice mm. of it. Like, you're, you're, you will hand over a large chunk of your life. And so you need to know that. Like, you wake up first thing in the morning and you will be work straight away. You go to bed at night, you think about work. You, mm. It's work is all encompassing. So you will sacrifice. Um, and that means you have to enjoy it because you want yeah, to enjoy you, your well, life. You, you certainly not hate it. So make sure it makes sense for you. Being a CEO is not for everybody. It's because like not everybody would enjoy what it is and the nature of the work that is involved with it. Um, so find out what CEO means for you in your career. Like what what's your role that you particularly want to go for? It kind of makes me think of what you were saying earlier about your mum saying to you when you were younger, it's not that you can, it's that you will. Yes, mm. yeah, 100%. Just go for it. Yeah. And you're going to make mistakes and you're going to learn so much from those mistakes, as painful as they are at the time of making them. Um, but even as a CEO now, you know, I still learn from just day-to-day things that are happening. And also, like, and this is one of the things I think um for women in particular we are trained to put our needs to one side to mm. let the needs of other people and in some ways that can be a really good management skill mm. because you don't need your ego is not being fed by others fawning at you so you're really capable of going okay i'm not an expert in this subject i need somebody who is an expert and you don't like you you're really good at soaking up the information and then using that and the ceo job is about decision, decision, decision. Like you can't get decision fatigue because it's Mm. just constantly you're making decisions based on whatever information you have to hand at the time. So you have to be able to go, okay, my own views, ignore, I need to listen to you because you know more about this subject than I do. Mm -hmm. And if you're so used to ego being fed, that may be a little challenging. That's why there is this kind of perception that women CEOs are brought in, particularly in big businesses, women CEOs are brought in in times of crisis because mm. women are so good at managing through crisis yeah. because they are not they just look at the collective and go well what's the collective good here rather than what's my individual career good yeah um not saying that men do that necessarily just saying this is what they do in crisis it's a strength it for in. women it is yeah. a strength the patience yeah or just your ego is just not attached to that yeah. part i mean i have a whopping ego like everybody i assume i have a whopping ego but that's not what feeds it mm. that's not where i get it from yeah so that helps i think yeah So we briefly touched on earlier the many challenges that you face in your role as CEO, more from the perspective of the industry, cryptocurrency. Where do you see it going? What is the future of crypto? 100%. Cryptocurrency, digital assets are going to be mainstream financial services within, I mean, God, within five years at least, if not sooner than that. Well, we post this episode then. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Do. And you're like, we told you so. Um, But that's coming. Um, traditional, the traditional shops, who I'm sure love being called traditional, mm. um, are have always been on the sidelines. Have always been interested. They're just figuring out the ways that they're going to come at it. Um, it was the same as what they did with fintech. They were like, okay, cool, cool. We're just going to wait, and we're just going to buy the ones that we think are the most developed, and we'll just suck them up. Just um, for our listeners, what is fintech? Oh, financial technology, such an abbreviation. So, what kind of companies would that be? So. What has to be understood is that traditional financial institutions, i.e. your banks, are built on really old tech. 
in one instance, there is uh, tech platforms that are run off of a language they no longer teach in universities. So it is old technology. FinTech is using the new technology. These are small companies that start up using new technology platforms to build iterations. Mm. So they would build out different kind of parts of financial services, like insurance could be built on. And they all have tech as their end. So it's insure tech and mm. reg tech. And you can see like a really lacking in imagination when <laughs> it worked. But this is that. So that's what they are. So even things like the fact that you've got mobile banking came mm. out of financial technology, came out of fintech. Yeah. Mm. So that's the spin-offs. And now that kind of fintech is just so standard. Like I don't use cash anymore. You know so what's I funny? Feel, I don't even use cash, but not even my card. I pay with my phone. Correct, me too. The behavior is totally shifted. But yeah. it's like that. And then that's, I think the main comparison is like a bank you still have to physically go in to some bank branches in order to facilitate some transactions through a middleman, whereas through fintech, um, cryptocurrency, for example, that's the, the exchange is the middleman. So the technology is the middleman. Correct. It just completely strips out that layer. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the direction that we're all going in. Yeah. Do you think that's, some, that's something that executives at traditional finance firms are most afraid of? Kind of maybe their job will be cut out. What they're most afraid of is their pension. and how much their salary and how high their salary is yeah right like there's and even within the discussions within cryptocurrency industry and so on it's almost like people forget you're just dealing with humans and you've got to understand the human concerns that you're dealing with and fundamentally it's about the job like to work in crypto you have to have a certain amount of fervor and, and belief in what you're doing because pushing this boulder up the hill three and a half years later and for others who are even longer in the industry it is not easy um and i think too perhaps maybe because of my background in traditional finance knowing that regulation was inevitably going to be coming for it and almost like we've been jumping up and down shouting from you know into the abyss we need to be regulated but not that way <laughs> we need to be regulated in an appropriate and proportionate manner like it's it, it's um but you've got to keep fighting the good fight so th- so while i'm obviously fundamentally you know, motivated by my own pension, I'm also motivated by being a part of something that's going to be hugely transformational and something that if I'd stayed within traditional finance, there's no way I would have been able to get my paws on something so um, exciting and so future-facing. Never would have happened in, in Tradvi. So mm. it's very exciting place to be in. Caroline, you've provided us with so many gems, little gems of wisdom throughout the episode. But just to kind of leave our listeners on something, what is one piece of advice that someone has given you maybe throughout your career or even just in life that has always stuck with you? Oddly, the most influential people in my life, whether they've said something or created a pathway for me, have been men. Okay. The most influential have been men. So, and I think that's probably unexpected in some sense in that particularly going through traditional finance that why would a man support you you're a threat coming through that hasn't been that has not been my experience in that sense there's been plenty of detractors who've also been men but the biggest supporters have been blokes um and i think perhaps what i got from that whole experience was more about backing and believing in myself Mm. i like i said to you at the start like i didn't realize how bloody good i was I did not realize how good I was, but they did. Yeah. They saw it. And I think even only now in my 40s, mid 40s, that I'm kind of going, oh, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bloody good at this stuff. And, you know, I have that sense of belief in myself. Yeah. I, what I wish I'd done, and don't make this mistake, is negotiate harder 
mm. on your salary. Yeah, I think that's um, a yeah, that's one thing that we can all topic. improve at yeah. as women. Like really, and I, I'm one of those people who need to go harder on their salary conversations, yeah. and I've never been able to do it throughout my career. I've always been like too embarrassed or whatever to actually go uh, balls to the wall. What do you think it is? Like, uh, so we're right, like not by our families, but like it's culture, it's society. Like, there's no way that one gender does it behaves in one way and another gender doesn't the other way. Yeah. Like that's BS. Like it's clearly socialization. Um, well, from what you've seen, what could you tell people to like any tips on that? One thing I would say is, oh man, just go for more than that what you think. Just go for more than what you think and see where it lands you. Yeah. Um, so in B2C markets, we have been scrupulous about trying to keep people as near to level as possible. The differences have been based around experience. Mm. But we've tried to be as, because I've got to look at the salaries and there is absolutely no way I'm going to do it on gender lines. Absolutely no way because I've been. There was a guy in my team in the bank in Merrill back in the day, this is in Dublin. We were peers. I mean, he's great as well. We were peers. And I found out how much more he was on than me. Like, it was a different pay band entirely. Oh, it was wow. like a whole other world of money. And I'm looking, going, how did you. How did you get that? Like, I was getting constantly five-star reviews, like, you're the best, you're brilliant, mm-hmm. you're amazing, you're How the frick? It's because I, I didn't advocate it's because he myself. spoke up. Yeah. Wow. He pushed for it. Mm-hmm. I did not. Here's another thing, actually, yeah, that's what I said before to people when you're going into a job, is that assume the position that you are self-employed. You are self-employed, you are almost like a quasi-contractor going into a business. And so you look at what, what are the benefits that you're going to give me in this job? What's the salary in this job? But do not feel like as if this company is going to be there to mind you for the rest of your life. It is not. You're only going to be there for a few years. You're going to learn and absorb. You're going to give and you're going to receive. Mm-hmm. But you make sure that what you receive, like don't get don't get too attached to it. Don't get emotional about it. Go, okay, well, I've looked out to market. Market says it's this rate instead. Am I in and around? If I'm not in and around, what else am I getting that's going to take me to that point? And then make those decisions. But really strip the emotion mm. out of it. It's not about you. It isn't about you at all. And Caroline, finally, if our listeners want to maybe see you on Bloomberg rocking the red lip, where can our listeners find you online? You'll find me on Twitter every day. (laughs) I am following you right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's at Caro Bowler. It's at C-A-R-O Bowler, B-O-W-L-E. You'll mostly find me there or on LinkedIn. You'll definitely find me on LinkedIn. Um, and just get in contact. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for, you know, taking your time out of your very hectic day. We, yeah, we loved chatting to you and we sure, we're sure our, our listeners will absolutely love kind of the, all the wisdom that you've really provided us in this episode. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks thank so much. you so really much. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Clever Media production. Clever Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. We pay our deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Liked this episode? Let us know about it. And don't worry, we have plenty more. So hit that subscribe button and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But want to take it that little bit further from your ears to your eyes? Then go find us as Clever Women Co. on TikTok and Instagram for that extra clever content we know you'll love. Catch you next time.